1: Welcome to episode 234 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota, although this week I'm on spring break, so I don't consider myself an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. I consider myself a stay-at-home husband. Excellent. Joining me also on spring break, David Grubbs, who is an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas grubs do you also consider yourself a stay-at-home husband Uh,
0: along with my stay-at-home family yes so i guess you're a stay-at-home dad too yeah it's 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 exciting this week um the kids don't know what to do with themselves daddy's been there each morning when they woke up and and i think the novelty's won't worn off but but still the the discombobulation continues
1: I uh, Every year, for seven years, I have gone in and worked over spring break as normal, and this year I said, no, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to bring any work home, and I'm not going in, so I have had a nice time not working on my spring break. Excellent. And I refuse to feel bad about it, although my saying, I refuse to feel bad about it, demonstrates how bad about it I feel. Also joining us not on spring break is Nathan Gilmore, who is a, an associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia.
2: Nathan? Yeah, I'm not on spring break, so I've been uh, teaching all day, which I enjoy doing that, so it ain't so bad.
1: Well, good, I suppose. Uh, before we get into our episode, what is, else is new on the network?
2: Uh, we just put up a new sectarian review this morning, uh, and once again, my aging memory is failing me, so there is a new sectarian review, you should listen it's to it.
1: religious enthusiasm. Is
2: That's what it is, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker.
1: So listen to that and cry until your makeup smears. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, that's not a very nice joke.
0: <laughs> I, yeah, but I get it. And then
2: the Christian Feminist podcast had an episode. Uh, you guys should be doing this because I'm forgetting everything that people are recording about.
1: <laughs> I don't remember their most recent episode. I'm sad to say.
0: The Women's Bible. Katie was on. That's that. right. That's Which right. Meant- the Women's Bible. Yeah, which meant I got to hear about the women's Bible for like two weeks before recording. It was exciting. You and and me both, brother. (laughs) Yeah, I'm never going to read that thing.
2: And then this is completely inside baseball, so forgive listeners, but apparently uh, Lori Norris uh, was recording an episode of Christian Feminist, and when it was done, she felt the need to tag me on social media and inform me that she hadn't cussed at all during the episode. So I you, think Laurie? it was an
1: open question. I, I asked Victoria if we needed to get Ellen, uh, our intern is now their intern as well, if we needed to get Ellen the beep sound effect for Laurie, and uh, Victoria said, she better not. She told me she wasn't going to.
2: Yeah, so so apparently I'm, I'm now the uh, yep. Steve Rogers of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. I'm the one who says, language. <laughs> nice.
1: We, Boy, we awesome. have beeped, th- there have been several profanity beeps on this show. Uh, when your brother was on, uh, I had to beep him, and I beeped myself, I think, when we were talking about country music, that terrible Toby Keith song about sticking a boot in somebody.
0: Oh, uh, yes, I
2: forgot about that one. Yeah.
1: Although, yeah. now here's a, here's an inside tip uh, for our listeners. I didn't actually say the word. I left a space and just dropped the beep in, because I'm so prudish. <laughs> here is the driven stuff
0: yeah yeah you could just lace this entire preamble to the episode with beeps and people would be just be like man they're like sailors today that's or, a
1: jimmy kimmel bit isn't it today uh, this week in unnecessary censorship
0: <laughs> okay
1: and and then also I have to, I mean, we record these on Thursdays, so this hasn't actually come out yet, but by the time you listen to this, it hopefully will. I just, I just did an interview with Gregory Allen Thornberry, who uh, is the chancellor at King's College in Manhattan. He wrote a book on the Christian rock pioneer Larry Norman, and I had a blast talking to him uh, about that. So that's over on Christian Humanist Profiles. Good stuff. Well, today we are at last concluding our series on uh, George Lindbeck's The Nature of Doctrine. I've been given the last two chapters, which, uh, most controversial? Maybe not?
2: I don't know. I I love this whole book, so I mean, all of it is glorious to me.
1: (laughs) Chapter 5 is composed of a series of test cases... Uh, which are attempts to work out the concrete implications of the cultural linguistic model for doctrine which if you don't know what that is maybe go back and listen to the previous two episodes because otherwise you're going to be pretty lost here By this time, he has very little left to say to expressive, emotive liberals, because now the contrast is pretty much only between cultural, linguistic, and propositional perspectives on doctrine. He starts with the Nicene and Chalcedonian creeds, and he says that the key to understanding them culturally, linguistically, is to understand the difference between doctrine and terminology. David, what is that difference, and how can it help us to understand the creeds better?
0: So... This bit I read last night when I was very sleepy. So if at some point this becomes, uh, this takes on the sense of incoherent uh, ramblings, that's our listeners are used to your whole vibe, David. That's fair. That's fair. Um, You guys have spent a good chunk of a decade getting used to my uh, quirks. Anywho's. As I understand this section, and I'm focusing particularly um, on on the the bit about the the creeds, Nicaea and Chalcedon, um, he has the idea that there is the there is the doctrine, which is uh, the the idea, and then the terminology or the words in which the doctrine is phrased. Um, so that he says, some of the crucial concepts in these creeds, such as substance, usia, person, hypostasis, um, or into natures in, di- uh, in dio phasis, f- uh, are post-biblical novelties. If these particular notions are essential, the doctrines of these creeds are clearly conditional and dependent on the late Hellenistic milieu. Uh, in other words, uh, if Nicaea and Chalcedon are forever and always doctrines of the church, as they are phrased, then forever and always for the church must the, the philosophical world uh, in which these creeds were formulated, were in which the words were picked. Um, that, that philosophical cultural framework, uh, it will always be necessary because we will always be saying usia and hypostasis um, forever and ever. Amen. Uh, he wants to say that this is, uh, this is untenable. Um, uh, and, and it, it also means that outside of that sort of cultural and historical milieu... Um, that Christianity would, 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 would never be able to reach beyond that in, into another culture, into another time. Um, so that there must be other ways that we can say the doctrine that the creeds affirm um, without necessarily having to use their time-bound, culture-bound terminology. There must be other ways to say it. Uh, at least uh, ba- based on this understanding uh, that I have of what's, of what's said here, um, he's re- he's reminding me of something that um, I've seen cycling in uh, theological circles these days, uh, reflecting on back on an article by a guy named David Iago. He's a, a theologian at the Trinity School for Ministry. It's a it's a an Anglican school, um, though I think he's a Lutheran. I can't remember. They have some Lutheran um, some Lutheran faculty. Anyway. Uh, he wrote an article in which he talks about how, uh, within the biblical text, you might have multiple texts that are uh, communicating the same theological judgment, but in different vocabulary or different terminology, so that you might be able to say that, in 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 a in a legitimate way, that this passage from uh, a Johannine gospel or epistle is is affirming the same idea about Christ that is affirmed in a Pauline epistle, um, albeit with different terminology. That you could have the same theological judgment but rendered with different language. Um, so part of what I think he's trying to do there is is to say that this cultural linguistic model um, helps us to think about... Um, how it helps us to see this distinction between um, the core ideas that really are definitive of Christianity as distinct from the culture and time bound um, language with which we express them. How am I doing so far, Nathan?
2: So far, so good. Um, I mean, I think that the term regulative use of these doctrines would be probably a good turn to make.
0: Yeah, so that's the n- the next uh, point that he makes, and, and he, he, he connects this to Athanasius, uh, and he 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 speaks of the doctrines as um, that they they state they state propositions, um, y- they can be they can be taken as propositions as 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 assertions, but he wants to focus on how they are functioning regulatively or functioning as rules. In particular, functioning as rules of what of what can be said or, or what can be said or not said, what should be affirmed, what should not be affirmed. And in particular, he, uh, he makes a reference to Athanasius, uh, who in talking about uh, the consubstantiality of father and son, the homoousias character of their relation, um, Athanasius, and this is his quote, expressed the meaning of consubstantiality in terms of the rule that whatever is said of the Father is said of the Son, except that the Son is not the Father. Thus the theologian most responsible for the first triumph of Nicaea thought of it not as a first-order proposition with ontological reference, but as a second-order rule of speech for him to accept the doctrine meant to agree to speak in a certain way. Now, before I quibble, Um, and maybe some quibbling will be coming up soon. I'll probably save that for later in the conversation, Michael. Well, I
1: ask you to quibble
0: openly in a later question, You do ask me to quibble later, so I'll I'll save the quibblage. Um, what I do appreciate about this is that he's pointing out something that is in the creeds, uh, especially when you have the language of, uh one person or or one one, one substance uh, three persons and then when we when we speak about the persons we must not confound the persons or divide the nature All right though that that creedal language that says this is true and this is true and we must not speak in this way and we must not speak in this way um, that there is a, there is a way in which the creeds sort of draw a line, draw lines, draw this square in which conversation about the Trinity happens. Uh, and that they have, uh, the creeds can have almost a kind of uh, a kind of apophatic function, that they're less, uh, that sometimes, uh, especially in that not not uh, confounding the persons or dividing the essence Th- they haven't stepped out and told you what an essence is they haven't yet told you what a person is um, but they've told you the directions in which you should not speak so that they have an apophatic function that is a, a defining God by thinking of the ways in which he is not um, ruling things out of order in speaking of God and in that way, uh, I think that Lindbeck uh, has, has a point, that these creeds are, uh, are constructing uh, the, the boundaries for the playing field, for discussion of the Triune God. Um, what things are ruled out of order, less than these creeds are in, in necessarily telling you what do they mean by a person, what do they mean by uh, a nature. They're more about saying, whatever we affirm of nature's, and this is this is what he's getting out of his Ath- Athanasius quote, whatever we affirm of the Father in nature is what we affirm of the Son. And he hasn't, in that quote or in those creeds, yet said, this is what a nature is. So, that helps us see... Um, I think how the creeds can at once function as meaningful meaningful markers for the boundaries of theological discourse through the ages, um, because they are expressing principles that can be said in different words that don't require us to be 4th century um, Hellenistic people. Um, But also uh, they are not professing to say all that could be said about uh, about who God is uh, in Himself, um, nor are they, nor are they claiming that all of all of that positive affirmation about the reality of God um, needs to be done before proper worship can happen. <laughs> um, so that's that's uh, that's positively what I'm getting out of this.
1: I'm a little confused here because <clears throat> it seems to me he's saying that the problem is that we're taking the, the language of the creeds and expecting that to be propositional when really the the, the deeper principle behind it is what's really propositional. It's, it's, it's a rule, but that's the thing that we should live by. What's to keep anybody from finding an even deeper principle underneath the principle Lindbeck finds?
0: Well, well, one of the things that I didn't unpack that I think helps with that, his take on the creeds is anchored in a a notion of the historical development of theology that looks at the the development of the doctrine of the Trinity as well as the, the sort of classic Christological doctrines as the result of what he calls three regulative principles. Um, The monotheistic principle, there is only one God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, um, what he calls the principle of historic specificity, that is, uh, this Jesus was a genuine human being who was born and lived and died in a particular place and time. And then this third one, which the principle of what may infelicitously be called Christological maximalism. And his quote is: "Every possible importance is to be ascribed to Jesus that is not inconsistent with the first two rules." Um, that third one, I I didn't think that was particularly felicitously <laughs> described. Um, but uh, if if I was to say it, uh, principle one: Hero is real. The Lord our God is one. Uh, second. Uh, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, and third, Jesus is Lord, and that these three biblical uh, regulative affirmations are then creating pressures to come up with ways of theologically expressing what will what true things will follow from these principles. So um, these he seems to regard as these are the most basic, the most fundamental pressures on speaking of God and speaking of Christ, and what the creeds are attempting to do at different stages of the game, um, in in the Christian church history is to chart out. And here's here's what those pressures of there is one God, Jesus was. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, and Jesus is Lord, here's how those principles are going to come to bear on the thing we're arguing about right now, and so here's how this creed is going to r- sort of draw the rules again to, to make sure that we are continuing to affirm these three regulative principles um, in the way that we speak of God, and the way that we speak of Christ. I think that's helpful. It feels in some ways incomplete, but I keep fighting and and this is this is maybe some of my repentance for last week, gentlemen. Um, I keep having to fight to remember that this book is like not even 150 pages long. Uh, and if there are sometimes things I feel could be done more thoroughly, um, he apologizes for that in the introduction so. Anything? And it's
1: not a theological book per se, right. so I mean, yeah, kind of what I want him to do is theology rather than whatever you would call this. <laughs> it,
2: more it's like philosophy a, of religion.
0: Yeah, it, it feels almost more like a manifesto. Um, a maybe, maybe that's not the right thing, but just a here's a direction we ought to go. Here's some basic ground rules. Now start. Right, a prolegomenon, maybe. Sure.
1: I'm going to skip over the second test case, which is Maryology, because Lindbeck doesn't spend much time on it. Uh, we can bring that back up at the end, if one of you is particularly interested in it. But I do want to move on to the case of infallibility, because really what we're talking about here is infallibilities. Uh, the three major branches of Christianity all have a different notion of who and what and under what conditions is infallible. Uh, how does Lindbeck put those three branches in conversation with each other, Nathan?
2: So first of all, for Lindbeck, uh, to go back to the categories we laid down last week, although I'm not going to get them with as much detail as Michael did because he's a much more thorough uh, podcaster than I am. Also, Um, I had
1: them written out on a sheet of paper, which I read from.
2: (laughs) But uh, for Lindbeck, the infallibilities, and I like how you phrase that, Michael, uh, are historically contingent doctrines. That he grants might be essential doctrines but that there are also doctrines for which you could imagine historical conditions in which they are no longer necessary. So let me break that down a little bit. When we talk about papal infallibility, he talks about it as in some ways a doctrine that helps Roman Catholics to navigate a world in which there are Orthodox and Protestant Christians. So in those zones and in those territories where there are disputes, the doctrine of infallibility of the Pope means that Roman Catholics can look to a, a, a source of authority that doesn't make a particular kind of error, namely the kind of error that leads away from salvation, and you can look to the official ex-cathedra pronouncements of the Pope in order to serve that function. Likewise, over on the Protestant side, Again, in these conditions where there are Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, the principle of uh, sola scriptura serves that same function. In, In moments when different Christians disagree on important questions, then the proper interpretation of the scriptural text can settle those disputes in an ultimately authoritative sense, and it can be free from the kind of error that leads away from salvation. Now, the Orthodox one, I think he gets a little bit squirrely on. Uh, he says that for the Orthodox, it is simply the council of all Christians worshiping together over all ages. Uh, I've heard phrases like that from Orthodox converts before.
1: What what, ha- what everyone has always believed everywhere is the, is the phrase I sometimes hear.
2: Yes, yes. So for them, you know, that is the source of infallibility, although they're... You are dealing with uh, historically uh, a zone of disagreement itself, so it's a, it's not quite as clear uh, how that can function as a, an infallibility the way that papal infallibility or or uh, sola scriptura biblical infallibility do. Now, as as far as this goes, uh, you know, in his schemata in his schema, pardon me, it's only one of them, so it's just a schema. Um, you're dealing with. Again, doctrines that are serving a particular function, namely regulating the discourse of the community in moments when there is disagreement between branches and sometimes within a branch of historical Christianity. And for that reason, again, uh, he could imagine a scenario, uh, not one that is likely to transpire within our lifetimes, but one that is historically conceivable, possible rather than impossible in which the Christians of the world, because of circumstances, efforts, and other variables that perhaps we can't imagine right now, reunite in some substantially organic way, the need for infallibility, whether that be papal, biblical, or communal, uh, no longer becomes possible. And then he kind of backtracks and says, well, actually, in that kind of scenario, you would have something like the orthodox notion of communal infallibility— but because the community would be singular rather than divided, uh, there wouldn't be a need for the infallibility doctrine at all, so it would become functionally an invisible doctrine. So again, you know, talking about this in terms of the philosophy of religion that he's laying down, he wants to say, can we take infallibility seriously on its own terms uh, and still have a conversation about it? In other words, can a Protestant explain to someone who is not a Protestant why it is that scriptural infallibility makes sense, uh, in terms that, first of all, do not reduce scriptural infallibility to a simple security blanket. But second of all, uh, allow for that to be a disagreement between Christians rather than a disagreement between Christians on one side and not Christians on the other side. Uh, so, I mean, again, you know, it's very similar to what, uh, David was talking about with the, uh creedal functions uh these have a regulative purpose they have a regulative work to do and you know within this cultural linguistic system uh that's what they do now uh, david i mean is there any part of this that you feel like i'm i'm missing out on here mm,
0: i i think you've covered it i think you've covered it well um my 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 issue is uh when he, com- when he comes at infallibility, just as uh, in, in previous chapters, when he came at uh, the idea of, of uh, when he was kind of setting up these, these issues before, um, I don't know, I, I come away feeling like infallible ends up meaning less than the word might imply. <laughs>
1: yes, that's, that is also the, the impression I get.
0: Right, um, and
2: again, I mean, he's doing philosophy of religion, he's not doing theology. So, I mean, part of, I think, what is leading to your discomfort, David, if I can put it that way, is that, you know, infallibility is the answer to a certain kind of question within the discourse that we call Protestant theology. He's trying to do something that is different. You know, he's trying to talk philosophically about what Protestants mean by infallibility without situating himself inside of that. Which creates that disconnect, I think, or am I still missing it?
0: So, what do what do claims of infallibility do? What 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 work do they do? Not necessarily what do they what do they claim? What what realities do they attempt to assert? But, they, 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 but how they set are those boundaries, claims functioning? They right?
1: they they're, they're yeah. there to they're there to set boundaries. So, so, on the one hand, it it tells you that if somebody goes outside the ex-cathedral pronouncements of the Catholic Church. They are no longer Catholic or perhaps no longer Christian. But on the other hand, they they, they comfort Catholics into saying, well, if you follow the church, even if you disagree with some of the things they say, if you trust their authority, you will not be led away from salvation. Which I think you're right. I think that is a diminishment of uh, infallibility the way the Catholic Church tends to talk about it. But it, it does give them something, I suppose the the real problem here is that all establishments of authority ultimately beg the question. And you see this very, very clearly in the in the sola scriptura uh, argument and in the Catholic Church argument, well, how do you know that Scripture is is infallible? Well, because a couple of verses of Scripture tell you that it is. How do you know that the Catholic Church is infallible? because uh, essentially because the Catholic Church tells you it is. The Orthodox one though also begs the question. It's what Christians have always believed everywhere in all times, which means that if someone doesn't agree with the Orthodox Church, they've stepped out of the fold. So, so that, too, begs the question, and, and I, th- I think this is one reason why Lindbeck is having a hard time nailing this down, because ultimately ultimately, these claims of infallibility only make sense if you've already accepted the claim to infallibility. Right.
2: So, um, Michael, is there an alternative you have in mind to this, or is that just something that you see as an, in- in- an inherent difficulty?
1: I'm an inherent difficulty. I don't have a better answer than he does. But I I think David's absolutely right that that he is defanging infallibility as he defangs a lot of doctrines in this book.
0: Right. I mean, what would be really handy would be if, you know, St. Michael the Archangel wrapped in flames of gold would descend from heaven and hover above us and say, you should all be Missouri Synod Lutherans and then go back up.
1: Yeah, but, I mean, that but would that also happening. beg the question, right? How do we know, what, what makes you say that that's infallible?
0: Right, right, because at some point someone's going to say, well, apparently the, the Missouri Synod Lutherans just raised an awful lot of money for a laser light show.
2: Yeah, right. Right, or right. they're going to go Ebenezer Scrooge on it and say there's more of gravy than the grave to you.
1: So so I I really, I really think that the infallibility problem is intractable. And ultimately, who you consider to say something is infallible is, in in essence, to say that you trust them. But I'm not sure a good argument can be made. Uh, Let me maybe good argument is putting it too strongly. I'm, I'm not sure a conclusive argument can be made about whether we trust. Scripture alone, or whether we trust the Catholic Church, or whether whether we trust this weird, nebulous things all Christians have believed, which really ultimately, right, means trust the authority of the Orthodox Church.
0: Well, this is the point at which uh, apologist or or Christian philosophers um, would step in and say, okay, then then what we have the issue that we have here is to establish how much do we. Uh, what what sort of an argument would we normally make um, about the sorts of things that we know? What would we need to establish about the sorts of things that we know before we would trust them? Not before we felt absolutely certain of them, but before we would trust them. Um, and, and that's a different kind of epistemological question than this absolute certainty question.
2: Right, yeah. and, and, and it's a theological question, which is what he doesn't get to till. You know, he basically nods forward to towards if you did theology this with this, this is what it might look like in chapter six.
1: Well, we should Mm -hmm. uh, keep pushing toward chapter six because we're uh, more than a half hour in and we have answered two questions. (laughs) (laughs) Let's keep moving. The last few pages of chapter five have my most extensive marginal questioning. I want to ask you about them, David, because I suspect you're bothered by some of the same things I am. So he's talking about the Trinity here, and he's particularly talking about competing Trinitarian illustrations. And he seems to me to be saying that it's beside the point whether our illustrations of the Trinity have any ontological connection to divine reality. Am I misreading him terribly there?
0: I don't think so, because he had previously... Uh, he had previously explained Athanasius and uh, the Athanasian take on creedal language as as, and this is his uh, this is his quote. This theologian thought of nice, the triumph of Nicaea not as a first order proposition with ontological reference, but as a second order rule of speech. For him to accept the doctrine meant to agree to a speak in a certain way um like he's he's already kind of made that point that um from this perspective our trinity talk is not talk about who god is uh it's 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 talk about our talk um what things can we say what things can we not say uh that i mean that that bothered me too michael um Especially to 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 especially the claim about um, about Athanasius. Um, yes, Athanasius does, does the the quote that he that he pulls in. Yes, that's a thing that Athanasius says. But there's an awful lot of things that, an Athanasius or these other church fathers from you know the fourth century who are dealing in these kind of early councils, there's an awful lot of things that they will say positively about the essence that Father, Son, and Spirit share.
2: Right. I'll I'll just jump in here, David, and I'll agree that he definitely overplays the patristic point. I, I, I would much prefer to say myself that this is a way that we late moderns can receive the fathers rather than saying this is what the fathers were doing all along.
0: I appreciate that because it's it's one thing to say here's a note in the fathers that the propositional view does not appreciate fully. That that I think would be very very helpful. But to step in to say, and 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 to sort of claim and in, in again the book the book is not one hundred fifty pages long. But to to drop an Athanasius quote and then for the rest of this section to refer to it as the, the sort of the Athanasian rule, right? To think like Athanasius is to eschew ontological affirmations, but instead just say these are these are just rules about what we say it can and can't say, um, which would make it a purely apophatic exercise. And yes, these ancient fathers, um, most of them Eastern, most of them coming from that that uh, that wealth of theological. Um, uh, thinking that will become the root of the 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 Eastern Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Oriental Orthodox Church, um, which has a grand tradition of apathetic of apophatic thinking and theology. Yes, they have that, but there's an al- there's an awful lot that they will say that 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 Christians can affirm positively about who God really is, and it 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 just felt it, it it felt as if his his argument for saying the ling- the cultural linguistic model can do these helpful things had shifted into and here's why we should do it instead of the propositional and in fact we just shouldn't have any interest in the propositional at all um you you made the point Nathan about him you know he's doing a kind of Non-theological or non-non-theological account of religion. That's that's kind of what he's presenting this as, and I always want to kind of pull back and say, okay, he's not attempting to. Um, he's not attempting to do theology in the way someone, from this propositional perspective, would, but at the same time, he keeps sort of stepping in and and attempting to rule out the sort of thing that a propositional theologian would do, as faithful to the biblical uh, the biblical text or Christian history Um, it sometimes it feels like a bait-and-switch I don't want to accuse him of that entirely but every once in a while it feels like his arguments goals are slipping if that if that makes sense
2: that makes very good sense and like I said on this read-through And you know, this is probably the sixth or seventh time I've read this book. I've read this book. I definitely was noticing those places where he was imposing this very, well, post liberal model on folks for whom liberalism wasn't a live question. And that sort of historical sloppiness uh, honestly surprises me a little bit just because I had never noticed it before. Uh, But it also, you know, points the way towards the intervening. 34 years of theology where I think a lot of writers have taken his project but refined it precisely on this question.
0: Hmm. And that's something I'd like to hear some more about later on in this conversation. But I mean just just to reassert though In his point about doctrine and terminology, about the distinguishing between the theological judgment and the language in which we express the judgment, at that point he's saying exactly the kind of thing that Athanasius says that they were doing at the Council of Nicaea when uh, he says that they chose the term uh, homoousios precisely because they thought that term not in scripture expressed ideas that were in Scripture in ways that that ruled out what they saw as um, a tendency towards equivocation among the Arians uh, in the disputes. So, you know, Athanasius will say, yeah, that's not a Bible word, but it's expressing a Bible idea, and that's why we used it.
1: The final chapter of the book really lays Lindbeck's postmodern cards on the table. What is this thing called intra-textuality, and why is it or isn't it a helpful way of thinking about Christianity?
2: Well, first of all, to situate it opposed to intertextuality is a a helpful first step. Intertextuality, of course, is uh, a post-structuralist move to talk about all discourse as in some sense, borrowing from other discourses, modifying it, combining it in different formations, so on and so forth, so that uh, to go to, you know, Michael's translation of Derrida that we talked about, I think when we talked about your Updike book, Michael, uh, there is no beyond the text, uh, or I forget how you translate it. It's been a few months. Something Uh, like that. Yeah, something like that. You've forgotten too. That's great. Uh, But intra-textuality, uh, really kind of gets summed up uh, in this sentence on uh, page 117 of the book uh, where he talks about uh, the role of the Bible, if you're thinking about it as an authority in this uh, post, uh, post-liberal cultural linguistic way. And here's the sentence, quote, a scriptural world is thus able to absorb the universe, close quote. So intertextuality uh, is not necessarily trying to translate the concepts into the, of the Bible into a vocabulary that is relevant or, you know, uh, more appealing to a waiting world, but instead the main project is to invite people into the discursive world of the text itself uh, so that we don't necessarily try to map biblical terminology onto modern psychological concepts But we try to map our own narratives and our own experiences, our own desires, so on and so forth, uh, onto the text of the Bible itself. So, for instance, you know, just to give a a pair of antithetical examples here, uh, it wouldn't be to say that, you know, uh, the abundant life that Jesus talks about in uh, the Gospel of John chapter 10 uh, is something like what, you know, the prosperity gospel teaches where, you know, it is this very Americanized celebrity culture, owning a lot of possessions, living in a nice house, so on and so forth. But instead, uh, the process of theology and the job of theology uh, is to rekey our notions of what abundance is so that it fits what's going on in that text. Now, that one's a little bit unfair because that's a, you know, prosperity gospel is in a lot of ways a sort of caricature that's an easy, low-hanging fruit kind of topic. Um, I guess another one might be uh, that, you know, instead of, for instance, uh, you know, trying to, well, I mean, I'll I'll use one that, you know, I've dealt with, with with my own students a fair bit, you know, they say that they want to find God's will for their life. Now, what that tends to mean is, what am I going to major in? Am I going to marry the cute boy or not? Uh, am I going to stay at Emmanuel College or am I going to transfer to the local community college? These are things that, frankly, are not concerns of any of the New Testament books that I'm aware of. Uh, and you know, part of my <laughs> right. job, as I you know try to counsel these students, is to get inside of that text and say, okay, you know, what does it mean for God to will something? What does it mean to know what it is that God wills? And so on and so forth. And of course, the, the little book, Good News for Anxious Christians uh, by Phil Carey is, you know, a very nice example of this kind of theology. And it's the idea that, you know, we don't necessarily limit ourselves to the vocabulary of the scripture but we situate our own questions, our own vocabularies, and so on and so forth relative to that textual tradition rather than make that uh, textual tradition relative to our concerns. Now, I think that this is a helpful way of, of thinking about Christianity largely because uh, it allows Christianity to be, in some sense, a fixed point on this matrix. Uh, and, you know, when we do entertain questions that aren't immediately the concern of the New Testament text, we don't try to, and I'm going to use some very post-liberal language here, we don't try to force the New Testament to answer questions that it doesn't pose, but instead we are free to say this is not a question that the the New Testament poses, but you can answer it as you will so long as you're also cognizant and as long as you are also um, respecting the authority of This question, this question, and this question that the New Testament does pose. So for those students who wonder if it's God's will that they switch from their, you know, business major to a kinesiology major, you know, what I generally tell them is, you know, it is God's will that you love God, love your neighbor, bear witness to the good news of the gospel, and, you know, by and large live as a community waiting patiently and faithfully for the coming of Christ— and you know, if you fix somebody's busted ankle as you do that, as long as you do that, you know, giving glory to the God who heals the body, then rock and roll, man. So well, I does, just does that tell them make that some God's sense, will of it, is Michael? For
1: them to switch to English instead of uh, kinesthesiology.
2: Well, those are not the students I generally get to advise, Michael. Unfortunately. <laughs>
1: No, that does make sense, and I think I think that is a helpful way to think about these questions that uh, that seem very pressing to us that are not, in fact, major concerns of the New Testament. So maybe, maybe if the if the goal here is to keep our concerns in line with the concerns of the New Testament, I think I can understand that more than some of
2: the other language he's used in this. and it doesn't mean to stop having those concerns. It just means to situate them so that you don't fool yourself into thinking that these are the perennial concerns that we inherit from that textual tradition.
0: One might think of it as, uh, almost as, as, as tuning or as, 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 as learning a style so that, uh, when you move beyond, uh, when someone introduces a new, uh, a new theme of music you can you can sit in and improvise there too, in a style that accords with that um, that tradition that that narrative that you situate yourself into um, you know you you are you are gospel tuned so that you can improvise beyond um, the, the direct concerns of that text in ways that are still recognizably um in that's in the same style, if that makes sense.
2: Can I make you a little bit uncomfortable, David? Sure. You have just rehearsed one of uh, Stan Hierwas's central arguments in his book, Performing the Faith. I'm fine with it. Right on, D- man. D- Keep D- two weeks
1: in a row, David has discovered he's a post-liberal.
0: <laughs> well, uh. I- And here's the thing, and no one's going to be surprised by that, uh, that's a move I learned to make from Van Hooser, who's apparently my filter for all post-liberal thought. Um, Rock and roll. So so Van Hooser, bringing the post-liberals to the evangelical neo-Calvinists.
1: Lindbeck connects post-liberalism and the cultural linguistic model to this thing he calls futurology. Uh, What is that, David, and why is it so important to his project?
0: oof yeah futurology um it he sounds start... like
1: some sort of uh, <laughs> science fiction cult doesn't it
0: it does a bit it does a, it does a bit mostly he 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 starts off by situating it as uh he he talks about prophecy and then talks about religions as having an orientation towards the thing that happens next that some religious perspectives aren't particularly interested in what happens next historically um because of their own kind of internal internal logic their own intratextual textual logic uh but that christianity uh among others, but Christianity is certainly one that has things to say about the future, has things to say about what our disposition should be towards the future. Among other things, it should be Maranatha. Uh, Among other things, it should be uh, what Peter says in, uh, I think his, his first epistle, um, that we should be waiting for the good shepherd to come because the good shepherd, when he comes, will also be judging the the, the shepherds who are here. Um, you know that there there is a kind of disposition towards uh, towards that future, uh, and I'm just going to give you some quotes and try to and try to say it. Uh, theological forms of uh, uh, the purpose of futurology is not to foretell what is to come, but to shape present action to fit the anticipated and hoped for future. Theological forms of this activity are more like contemporary futurology than biblical prophecy. Unlike prophecy, futurology does not depend on first-order inspiration or intuition, but is a second-order enterprise that draws on the full range of empirical studies in order to discover the signs of the times. So what are the the tr- the cultural trajectories? What are the trends? What, where do things seem to be going? And... Uh, where does that, uh, where does that lead? In the, in the case of Christian theology, the purpose is to discern those possibilities in current situations that can and should be cultivated as, antip- as anticipations or preparations for the hoped for future, the coming kingdom. Uh, in brief, a theological proposal is adjudged both faithful and applicable to the degree that it appears practical, in terms of an eschatologically and empirically defensible scenario of what is to come. Oof. In other words, um, watching carefully the way things are sh- are shaping up so that we adjust our agendas and actions in the present to to cultivate such things as seem to be partaking of that coming future we look towards, right? The Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, what did those things mean to Christianity historically? Um, we have, you know, different visions, especially um, in, uh, in the Old Testament prophets, uh, people like Isaiah talking about what that world will look like. It looks like um, beating your swords into plowshares. It looks like um God saying to Egypt and Assyria, You are my people and come worship with my people Israel. It looks like any number of things. Um you can, you know, go look at the prophets. And this futurology that he that he talks about is this what he sees as a Christian practice, a Christian theologically informed practice of seeing what what trends in the now that show us things that, that seem to be coming in the future um, point us in the direction of what, which of those trends we should cultivate because they are most like the thing that we are looking for in the end. Um, now what that doesn't say, it doesn't settle any of our arguments, um, our current cultural arguments uh, of liberal or conservative, uh, policy it doesn't settle in any of those kinds of matters um because you know my you know my friend on the left is going to look at certain trends as as pointing towards things they identify uh, they identify as Kingdom realities uh, in one kind of way and I'm gonna disagree with that I'm gonna say yeah I don't think that's I don't think that's gonna be part of the Kingdom um, I think this other thing is um, He's not foreclosing on those arguments, but he is saying this is a, this is a disposition that we should be having. Um, they're uh, a, a kind of, if we might say, cultural relevance. But it's rather a, not how do we get relevant to the culture, but how do we see what's in the culture um, becoming this world that our intertextual re- textual reality um, points toward something like that. And it doesn't have anything to do with Futurama, so far as I can tell.
1: (laughs) Except that Futurama is probably not the future that we're supposed to want to live in.
0: Almost certainly not. Nathan?
2: About the only thing that I would highlight, and you kind of talked about it on your way through there, David, but he wants to distinguish pretty clearly between a spiritual gift of prophecy uh, in which a revelation from God beyond the capabilities of reason discloses something about God's plans in the world. That's not what he's talking about when he's talking about futurology, and he's not talking about that as a task of theology. And I think that I have a hunch, I'll put it that way, that he has in mind a critique of certain liberal theologies that talk about anything that is progressively political as prophetic, with scare quotes around it. Uh, he wants to say that you know, this is a genuinely theological task. In other words, it's something to which people have access uh, by means of reason without a you know, particular moment of revelation. Uh, and for that reason, you know, uh, he wants to still maintain that the spiritual gift that we call prophecy is still one of the data that makes up the dogma or the doctrine of the Christian faith without identifying this futurology with it.
0: That, that that makes sense and I appreciate I appreciate him wanting to um, help us to properly eschew a what is what could be a covert or overt authority claim um, in in those kinds of conversations. though I wonder whether it's it's as much of a distinction when you when you look at the at the biblical prophets, you know, it's biblical prophets who say, you know, you know, the time is coming when the Lord will do this thing. But it's also the biblical prophets who say, do justly, love mercy and walk humbly with thy God. Um, I mean, part of the the legal function of the prophets to remind the people of their role as God's people under covenant is to point them towards the ways in which their lives need to adjust to fit that coming kingdom reality. So maybe the prophets are doing some of this futurology too.
2: Yeah. I guess the the distinction I would make is that, you know, we would still regard them as an authority in a way that we wouldn't regard a theologian who is not a prophet in the sense of that spiritual gift as an authority. Does that, does that distinction make sense?
0: Oh yeah. 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 That, that 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 makes sense, but I, I I feel more confident in in saying that this is a job that we can do when I see the prophets also doing it.
2: That's fair enough. That's fair enough. I also just have to point out that you know Lindbeck writes this uh, notion, uh, this critique of the progressive uh, prophetic, about five years after uh, Walter Brueggemann's critique in uh, the Prophetic Imagination, and I just have to recite it because it's so cheeky and wonderful he says that uh, in certain progressive political circles this is brueggeman talking prophetic has come to mean progressive politics done especially abrasively
1: that's, that's great <laughs> and true <laughs>
2: and still true today
1: near the end of the book uh Lindbeck says that post-liberal christians are going to be skeptical not of missions as such but of apologetics Nathan, what's the distinction to be made there, and what does missions look like without apologetics?
2: When he talks about apologetics, Lindbeck seems to have in mind a foundational model. So we're going back to that propositional uh, criterion that we talked about earlier, where we have a common field of discourse, if you will, uh, and the contest between religions is which one can uh, basically meet a pre-established test of validity, verity, so on and so forth. And he's not so much interested in that largely because of his commitment to a sort of pluralism of rationalities. Uh, So in other words, it's not as if we have access to uh, the kind of reality that we would need in order to do laboratory or observational tests on whether or not the soul is reincarnated, on whether or not history is actually moving towards an eschaton in which the lion lays down with the lamb, so on and so forth. Instead, what he's interested in is a kind of apologetics that, again, invites people in. And I mean, listeners, if you've listened to us over the years, you know that one of my favorite theology words is invite and invitation. And I got this largely from Lindbeck because for him, and I'm going to use my formulation here instead of his, because I've also been talking about this for a number of years, for Lindbeck, the best apologetics is a solid dogmatics. So you don't try to translate, to use his term, your terminology into a foreign vocabulary. Instead, what you do is present the vocabulary as a system uh, with all of its interconnections, all of its narratives, vocabularies, all of its symbolism. And the appeal that apologetics makes within this model is, within this world within this discursive uh, culture, you can make more sense of human experience than you can within those other ones. Uh, So, you know, if the, you know, apologia of Tertullian makes the wager at the end that, you know, if you want to find out whose god is the real god, let's bring some demon-possessed people together and see who can exercise them better. Lindbeck's wager, on the other (laughs) hand, is... Let's get together and take, you know, the claims of materialist atheism and the claims of Wahhabist Islam and the claims of Lutheran Christianity, and we'll see which one can actually make intelligible a broader range of actual human experience. It's a very
1: Thomas Kuhn model for theological discourse.
2: Yes, Thomas Kuhn and Ludwig Wittgenstein, their fingerprints are all over this project. And, you know, when I look back at, you know, I'm going to get a little autobiographical here, but I mean, on the relatively few occasions when I have, through conversation, you know, led people, I'll say closer to Christianity, because I've still got enough Jonathan Edwards in me that I say that the spirit has got to get in your innards for anything significant to happen. But the times when I have uh, played a role in that narrative, this has tended to be the... The approach that I take. Uh, I tend to say, you know, I mean, I don't say, you know, these are the proofs for, you know, the fact that, you know, Jesus rose on the third day. But instead, I talk about, you know, the resurrection as something that, you know, I take as something that happened in the world. And the reason that that is important is because it is a hinge on which history turns. And all of these things that are aspirational in Christian theology actually took material existence at this moment in this place, you know, among these Romans and these Palestinian Jews and so on and so forth. So I do in fact say that, you know, Jesus rose bodily from the grave. Uh, That separates me from certain process thinkers. Uh, But the reason that, you know, that is uh, significant, pardon me, uh, is because it is a material manifestation of certain conceptual and symbolic and narrative and so on and so forth realities that we only have in textual form, but took on, you know, a different kind of existence at that moment at that time. Uh, So, you know, in my mind, I mean, just because this is the way that I have practiced uh, evangelism over the last 20 years, give or take, uh, this makes a great deal of sense to me. Uh, because this is the way I do it, of course, this model, you know, appeals. Uh, so what I'm interested in is, I mean, what you guys think of it, you know, uh, to what extent does this resemble conversations that you've had or conversations that you've heard of? And, you know, are there other models that you think are more adequate than this one?
0: I think there is a lot to commend it, um, especially especially in, in the culture that we live what people are are suspicious of meta narrative claims in our world claims of you know this is this is the story that makes the absolute truth people are suspicious of that and so inviting them to try on a world in some sense um i think maybe less le- less threatening um in some ways, uh, it also has the strength of recognizing that 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 great mass of of Christ, Christian experience, um, which isn't propositional, uh, as as we've talked about we talked about last week, um, that a lot of Christian uh, a, a lot of the the reality of the Christian life is not. These things that you know in your head and connect to one another in logically systematic ways but ways that you live and ways that you act um, individually in community in relationship to this book in relationship to this risen Lord um, and that way of, of evangelism um, lets people know that you're not inviting them to consider and concede an argument but you're inviting them into a life. That I see as As useful, Um, but this is one of those uh, one of the places where he says at the beginning of the book, "Let's adopt this cultural linguistic model because all of these other sciences and fields of study have done so, and this will help us catch up." And then at the end of the book, he says, "Ah, this cultural linguistic model, it will it will." lead you to think in these kinds of ways, but it's not going to tell you what to do with the with the liberal, it's not going to tell you what to do with the conservative. In some sense, the cultural linguistic model is kind of above those concerns. Um, but it's also going to say no to apologetics, because apologetics is concerned with this proposition thing that we're not about anymore. And at that point, I was uh, my my reaction was yes to inviting people into the whole lived experience of Christianity as opposed to just inviting people to a systematic theology. But at the same time, this negates an awful lot of what the church has done throughout its history in its apologetic endeavors. Um, that seems like. Th- that that seems like this the this a sort of move that would make this cultural linguistic model and its influ and the way that he's teasing out how it would play into missions and evangelism. Um, it seems as if this is this is one of those ways in which adopting the cultural linguistic mode will actually make us more like our time, and less and less loyal to those perennially true things that the faith once for all for delivered for the saints through the centuries has represented um he seems to want us to be attuned to these kind of perennial things but also not but also flexible enough to kind of work them in these different contexts but this seems to be one way in which accommodating to the time actually shunts us off from the great tradition if that makes sense
1: is there such a thing as not accommodating?
0: I don't. So when I don't we, think when we so. talk
1: about yeah, I mean when we talk about getting shunted off from the great tradition, the great tradition is a series of people, a, ser- a series of people accommodating uh, Christianity to their times, right? That's the point with Athanasius using homoousios. That's a, a concept from Greek philosophy. It's a, a concept dominant in his age, I suspect. Uh, Jonathan Edwards is Jonathan Edwards in part because he tries to bring Locke to bear on conservative Christianity. So, I mean, maybe the problem is Lindbeck views this cultural linguistic model as being above the times in some way. Because he's trying to explain all times. Maybe it's insufficiently postmodern is what I'm complaining about.
2: (laughs) Right. And Michael, what you're saying right now is precisely, like I said, one of the directions that theology since Lindbeck, who is nonetheless influenced by Lindbeck, has tried to make more sense of. I mean, one of the the errors that he makes, you're absolutely right, is sometimes he drifts into thinking about this cultural linguistic model as itself pan-historical rather than historically contingent.
0: Right.
1: But I want to be careful saying that because I think sometimes uh you know this is grounded in your culture sometimes that's used as a way of dismissing the tradition and i don't want to do that at all i'm i'm with i'm with david any attempt to dismiss the long history of Christianity is, is a is a move away from Christianity itself, because Christianity is this historical groundedness that changes in some ways over time, but it doesn't change in other ways. And I think Lindbeck's model does a good job of recognizing that. I, I really do, that the idea that some of the propositions may change, but the underlying rules remain the same, I, I think I think that's a helpful way to kind of integrate ourselves with the past rather than dismissing it or swearing blind allegiance to categories that don't make sense in a modern world. But I do worry that he he sees himself insufficiently as grounded.
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right on that point. And one thing actually, David, when you were talking, it occurred to me is just how much, and this horrifies me to say so, uh, common ground there is between Lindbeck's position and some of what I see in Cornelius Van Til, uh, this idea that, you know... <laughs> <laughs> there is a possibility of an antithesis uh between you know two languages if you will because their vocabularies are so radically different that you know someone cannot be convinced in a certain terminology unless they submit themselves to learning this new language uh so like i said i mean that's a horrifying thought for me but i think it might be true
0: well it's it's funny to me that he 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 takes this so, religion is like language, and therefore and therefore, translation, you know, when, w- what you lose in translation is the essence of the thing. Um, so, if you're going to attempt to convert people, um, attempting to translate Christian concepts into language they know is always going to be insufficient. They're going to have to come inside for the 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 language immersion experience. Okay, that's fine. Except that the instinct of Christianity, since the beginning, so far as I can say, as so far as I can see, is to try to find conceptual common ground with people who are not inside this intratextual canonical biblical world worldview, if we can invoke that term, um, people who are not inside that, but attempt to create some kind of conceptual common ground with them in order to bridge that gap in terms of propositions. Um, you see, you know, Paul appealing to Greek poets when he's talking on Mars Hill. Uh, you see Justin Martyr do this this thing and his apologies. Uh, it's... It's a thing that Christians have always seemed to think they could do. And for Lindbeck to kind of say, eh, this is insurmountable, um, is the same kind of, I, I think it should make us sort of tilt our head and squint um, in the same way it does when Van Til makes that move relative to the history of apologetics. Um, to say, eh, I mean, as if that was all one big, long, dead end.
1: A kind of cosmic brain way to think about this is to say that Lindbeck is doing exactly what you're talking about. In, in dismissing apologetics, he's doing apologetics for an age that dismisses apologetics. Now, I don't know if that's yeah. what he conceives of himself as doing, but the fact that he says we need to help theology to catch up with these other disciplines, essentially he's saying let's speak the postmodern language and find a way to make theology, quote-unquote, relevant, I hate to use that word, <laughs> in, a, uh, in a postmodern age.
0: Doesn't it feel kind of like he's sawn off the limb we're sitting on?
1: Yes, but all postmodernism feels that way to me. I mean, Thomas Kuhn talking about science in that way feels like the same thing. It feels like he has, to use a different metaphor
0: defanged science a fair point
1: yeah um, i i just i i that that's i think that the dominant move or mood maybe of postmodernism. well i think we've actually answered my last question which is what does this look like 30 years on do either of you have anything else to say about that or have we pretty much covered
2: it david i'll let you have the first swing because i've got i've got a couple words
0: Well, it it looks like James K. Smith, and to me it looks like Kevin Van Hooser. Um, And I'd like to hear, naming some names, I'd like to hear some more specifics from you, Nathan, about people who you say have taken Lindbeck's trajectory and um, kind of tidied up some of these places where he gets either historically beyond beyond, um, the... beyond the data <laughs> or, uh, where he gets, uh, conceptually beyond himself. Um, I, I'd like to hear from you on that perspective, but at least from, from where I sit, some of these ideas are showing up in thinkers that I respect. Um, but without some of these other, um, without some of these other tendencies, I think it's the, the, the post postmodern, um, Evangelicals, those evangelicals who didn't just sort of throw rocks at the postmodern um, and hiss at it, you know, like vampires exposed to the sun, but the ones that sort of listened to it, um, read its works, and then said, um, let's reformulate um, the ways that we think through our own positions uh, that take into account um, a lot of these uh, critiques of of modernist thinking, these critiques of sort of uh, the illusion of pure rationality and so forth um, but to do it in such a way that you don't sell the limb off um, I, I, think, I think there's folks who, who've, who've done that and if they're lying downstream from Lindbeck as they clearly seem to be um, I thank God for him because he, he put some things in the bloodstream that have ended up doing good work um, even if as I'm reading it, um, I'm finding things to differ with, um, I can still, I can still applaud um, some of what he's doing as, uh, as contributing to things I've benefited from.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, the most obvious uh, heir of George Lindbeck is Stanley Hauerwas. Uh, You know, I mean, his post-foundational theology and his ad hoc approach to theology, you know, it's, Not a coincidence that Stanley Hauerwas never wrote A Systematic Theology. Uh, These are both, you know, uh, among his many influences. You know, Lindbeck is certainly on that list. One tradition, though, that I think is doing some very different but very interesting things is the tradition of radical orthodoxy. The Catherine Pickstock and Graham Ward, John Milbank, to some extent David Bentley Hart. These are writers who remain profoundly aware at every turn of their own historical situation in a way that sometimes slips with Lindbeck, but they are still making these moves to do precisely what David was narrating earlier. So in other words, they are using the vocabularies uh, and you know, some of the maneuvers uh, of continental philosophy Uh, in order to do a a kind of Christian dogmatics uh, in a way that is, again, you know, that that word relevant keeps coming up. I I don't like that word, Uh, but in a way that engages on its own turf uh, some of the thought of the 21st century. So just to give an example, you know, I mean, one of John Milbank's big critiques uh, of George Lindbeck in his 1993 book, I think it's 93, uh, theology and social theory is precisely that you know Lindbeck uh, wants to turn Christian doctrine uh, into something that is you know a purely intratextual reality. What Milbeck, what Milbank, pardon me, wants to do is to bring in some genuine metaphysical thinking to bear on this project, because in his words, and I'm paraphrasing here because I, I didn't prep this for this episode. Uh, whenever we engage in in the practice of narrative, we are presuming a certain kind of metaphysics. So in other words, within a given kind of story, certain things are possible, certain things are impossible, certain things are likely, certain consequences result from certain circumstances. All of these things are metaphysical concerns. So by shying away from the metaphysics and calling it a sort of secondary reality, Milbank argues, Uh, We are actually cutting ourselves off from some of the things that make narrative possible in the first place. So in that book, you know, Theology and Social Theory, what he proposes is what he calls a postmodern Augustinianism, uh, which again is trying to take seriously the questions that our own moment, especially in continental philosophy, but in other fields as well, are putting forth into the world but still answering, him, answering them in ways that would be intelligible, uh, at least at a remove, uh, within the kinds of projects that Augustine in City of God and Confessions is about. So it's very sophisticated. It's very bookish. Uh, it's a very literate kind of theology. And like I said, I think it's one of the most promising heirs of George Limbeck's project that are you know active right now. To turn to another book, just real quickly, because I realize I'm rambling like a crazy person right now. <laughs> uh, if you look at uh, David Bentley Hart's, you know, recent defense of classical theism called *The Experience of God*, uh, you know, this is a book that is very, very clearly rooted in the classical tradition. You know, not only of Christian theology, but he also delves into medieval Hindu thought, medieval Islamic thought, medieval Jewish thought. And his project uh, is to present in a, again, I would call it a postmodern vocabulary, a genuine intellectual alternative uh, to enlightenment thought. Uh, So it is in some ways reaching back before enlightenment deism. In some ways it is reaching beyond enlightenment deism, but again, you know, it's in this complex, what I would call intratextual uh, practice of his that he wants to not only oppose that enlightenment mode of thinking, but also to encompass it within that broad theological vocabulary so that he can actually explain what it does as he is as he is providing an alternative to it. So, like I said, you know, Lindbeck, you know, listeners, I'm sure you've heard over the last three episodes is just massively influential on me, but it's not only because of this little hundred fifty five page book, It's also because of the thirty four years of theology that have come after. So Michael, I mean, what do you think all this?
1: Uh, you know, I mean, what what I said, I think this this has its value so so long as that we recognize that it is itself a culturally reflective. Uh, sort of language. And so if we, if we expect this to be the last word, I think we're going to be disappointed. And as you guys have pointed out better than I could, um, there have been words after this one. This is a very long episode. Nathan, what are we talking about next week?
2: Well, since the uh, NCAA basketball tournament will be well underway by the time this episode drops, uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about the NCAA and modern, or perhaps postmodern, collegiate athletics. Next time,
1: sounds great. In the meantime, you can get in touch with us at uh, Christian. Hum- what is? It? I don't remember any of our uh, contact information. It's the Christian Humanist at gmail dot com or christianhumanist.org. dot org. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Ellen Peterson. For David Grubbs and Nathan Gilmore, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.